we try to help women. And I know for myself, a lot of my healing came from situating pornography's role back into my whole story of like, who am I? What gifts was I created with? What wounds were inflicted upon me in my childhood? And how did pornography pose an answer to those wounds? Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show presented by Ave Maria University. This podcast is sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle, a community that supports the mission of Ave Maria University through their monthly donations of $10 or more. If you'd like to support this podcast and the mission of Ave Maria University, I encourage you to visit avemaria.edu slash join for more information. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we are joined by Rachel Clackey, an Ave graduate uh, with, who did her bachelor's and master's degree at our university. Uh, when she was here, she was Rachel Geiger, uh, mm-hmm. for listeners who are alums and parents and students who might know her by that name. Uh, but we are thrilled to have her on our show today, and we are going to talk today about recovery from addiction, and specifically recovery from addiction to pornography. So we are so glad uh, that you're on our show today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is fun. Welcome, Rachel. And so you have a book that just came out called Love in Recovery, One Woman's Story of Breaking Free from Shame and Healing from Pornography Addiction. And um, just what a courageous journey and story that you've had. And for those uh, listeners who may not know, Rachel Clackey is also the founder and director of Magdala Ministries. Uh, So maybe if you could just begin kind of uh, with a big picture, what are some of the things that Magdala Ministries does and uh, what led you to, right, you know, go into this work? Oh, yeah. Um, So Magdala is an organization that offers community and resources to women struggling with sexual addiction. So we host and train leaders to facilitate virtual recovery small groups. So they're confidential. They journey through a curriculum that's been crafted by our team and a team of psychologists and clergy. And then we also partner with college campuses and parishes to help them facilitate groups for women in person. And we also have a blog, a podcast. We produce contents uh, to kind of bring women into the fold, into the community, and also just kind of change the narrative surrounding women and sexual addiction that we've been kind of raised with in the church. I got started actually here. I started a recovery group here when I would share my testimony at women's events starting, I think, junior year. I would always be approached by about a third of my audience, which statistically kind of matches up. And they would be asking for help. It would just be women asking for help. So I talked to campus ministry and started a recovery group, wrote the first edition of our curriculum, uh, led that group my senior year, and then passed it off to my co-founder, Mary Jo Carney, who's also an alum, when I was in grad school. And then I kind of went on to do other things for a couple years and then was invited to uh, take that small group model that we started here and launch it to the wider virtual platform that we now have as Magdala. So we serve women in 37 countries and counting on six continents. We have 10 college campus partnerships. We're working with our parishes right now because we just launched that version of our partnership. But it's wow. been it's been a crazy two and a half years. That's, a, that's <laughs> an amazing crazy. journey. That's really exciting. Uh, to see the work you've done. Thank you. Now, maybe could you say a little bit about why 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 recovery communities? Why these virtual communities? Yeah. What is it about the nature of addiction 
and maybe specifically, you know, addiction to pornography, mm-hmm. that that you find community or groups yeah. are somehow almost necessary yeah. to finding strength and healing and recovery. Yeah, I'd say I'd say necessary for for long term healing, like you're saying. It's not necessary for sobriety per se, but one of the hallmarks of addiction of any kind, but especially pornography addiction, is is shame. And shame feeds isolation, and isolation fe- feeds further engagement of addictive behaviors, which in the end creates more shame, and then it sends you back yeah. into the cycle. So, shame is at the center of our addictive behaviors. I think when we're engaging with with any substance or behavior where that has the potential to be addictive we're in a sense bonded to the shame as well it's familiar mm-hmm. to us it's it creates a certain sort of false home that we think we're destined for so community kind of goes hand to hand with combating that shame so i think when i've seen women surrounded by other women uh, for the first time they're they're grasping the concept that they're not alone. And even that for some women is enough to just catapult them into long-term recovery. Mm-hmm. But if you, yeah, if you bring women face to face with one another, even virtually it, mm-hmm. it's enough to really lessen their shame. Wow. Mm-hmm. So addiction and shame kind of breeds isolation. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe secrecy. Yes. Right? Secrecy, We're only as dishonesty. kind of sick as our secrets. So yes. when we begin to enter into a community mm-hmm. and share that shame and share that, well, we, then, then the isolation begins to depart. Yes. And it's kind of like you see a twofold effect of reintegrating your addictive behavior back into yourself of like no longer dissociating. Because I think the cycle of addiction also involves a lot of dissociation where you separate. You're like, I'm not that. I will never do that again. And then it's about reintegrating the behavior. You face it and then you realize that you do want it far away from you and you push it back out. So community yeah. kind of has a a really interesting way of pulling your behaviors back into your own heart and mind, realizing what you've become and then realizing you don't have to stay that way. So that's where I think it's necessary for long-term healing. Yeah, that's beautifully put. Uh, I think this topic of shame is really fascinating. Yeah. Uh, there's a story that St. John Vianney, uh, the cure de ours, mm-hmm. and uh, St. John Vianney was a kind of a fascinating priest. Yeah. Uh, he was um, kind of so... Um, intellectually challenged uh, that he couldn't pass Latin and he barely got mm. out of seminary. I get it. Um, one time there was a petition going around saying that he was unfit to be a priest uh, <laughs> and he signed it. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Because <laughs> he felt that, hey, he knew he was unworthy to be a priest and this yeah. beautiful humility. But one of the interesting things is that people would go from around the countryside, around France, to go to confession to him because he could he had the gift of being able to kind of read souls. Now, why yeah. would we want to go to confession to a priest who can read our souls? Yeah. Right? And in a way, well, why is that? It's because how wonderful if the priest could say what I'm too ashamed to say. Mm. And if he could just say, I know that deepest yeah. wound and that deepest hurt that's in your heart. And so people would go to him, you know, and the same thing with Padre Pio, St. Padre Pio, right? You know, not many priests have this gift, right? This is miraculous. It's not uh, common, yeah. but that's what it would mean. Because in a certain sense, it would be a shame-free zone. Mm-hmm. Was, and he has a story one time where one time he steps out of, and people, he'd be in the confessional for like 15 hours a day sometimes. Oh my gosh. And uh, he has a story that one time he'd step out and he saw uh, these uh, demons that were attacking and kind of um, trying to tempt mm. his penitence. He says, what are you doing in my church? And uh, the demons say to him, 
we are giving back to your penitents the shame that they didn't have when they were sinning so that now they will feel it and not confess their sins. Whoa. Um, And this really is this powerful thing that, and and I think it's really, we really have to be very attentive to it within our Catholic culture. We want to create, on the one hand, a sense that there is a positive role of shame. Like, I don't want to do those things, so I don't do them. That's a positive notion of honor and shame. There's another side, those once I've done them, Yes. Then I become so ashamed that I begin to hate myself further and I begin to think I am even more worthy of behave of like slowly destroying myself. Yeah. And that's the cycle of shame that becomes uh, right yeah, um, poisonous. And, and so yeah. I think it's something that is I don't I just I've always been kind of uh, yeah, I, I think, struck by that story. I think you're I think you're right. I think how we distinguish in Magdala, and I think how I distinguish in the book is between guilt and shame, that guilt is something that can lead to repentance and that's kind of the positive force. But then shame is what is destructive. Shame is the, and Brene Brown, people have their different opinions about her, but she kind of puts it really simply and says, guilt says I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. Yeah, beautifully put. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. the guilt, yeah, I think guilt absolutely has a role in uh, Mm -hmm. just ethical behavior and repentance, confession, uh, but shame, yeah, like you said, it can drive us away. Yeah, and I like the way you put it, that shame actually becomes part of the addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think this is something that people who, you know, try to understand addiction in rational terms go, why does the person do this when they know it's making them unhappy? Well, there's a certain sense in which the person often believes that they're supposed to be unhappy, Yeah, that they're destined for unhappiness, that they're unworthy, uh, and this becomes right, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And mm-hmm. uh, there's a way that if we go to the theological tradition, right, S- Satan mm-hmm. is the accuser. Yeah, Satanus is the mm-hmm. accuser. He's the one who comes in and accuses us. He says, shame on you. Yeah. You're unworthy. Yeah, And it's the Holy Spirit in Jesus. Jesus is the advocate, the parakletos, mm-hmm. the defender. Holy, the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit is the another paraclete, another yeah. advocate. And so... What does the Holy Spirit do? It says, your sins are forgiven, Mm. right? Jesus says, peace be with you, right? Your sins are forgiven. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the forgiveness of sins. And so, right, Jesus rises from the dead fundamentally to say shame off you, Yeah. right? And I think it's so important to pay attention to that because I think as we want to talk, and we will a little bit today, about some of the ways in which pornography is not actually helpful no. yeah. to the human person. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not helpful to marriages. It's not helpful to young people. It mm-hmm. is actually a harmful behavior. Yeah. But at the same time that we describe that, we have to also be aware that there may be people who are trapped for the moment within that behavior. Mm-hmm. And to speak of the behavior as unhealthy, mm-hmm. sinful, a block to our flourishing, right? You know, an impediment to our flourishing does not mean that the person doing it is unworthy, right? Christ died for that person. Amen. Yeah. You know, so I feel like that's a kind of an, I just, how how do you deal then with that balance between wanting to expose kind of the fact that this drug is not healthy and is not wholesome, but at the same time, help people uh, get out of the shame, you know, for engaging in these things. We're, yeah, we're pretty driven 
by kind of like a narrative-based approach. So uh, Dan Allender is a Christian psychologist who developed kind of narrative trauma um, theory or narrative yes. trauma therapy. And he trained a couple of psychologists, one of them being Jay Stringer, who's kind of, uh, I would say, an expert in kind of sexuality, sexual brokenness, sexual addiction. And he's just created beautiful, beautiful work for men and women in that topic. But we we try to help women, and I know for myself, a lot of my healing came from situating pornography's roll back into my whole story of like, who am I? What gifts was I created with? What wounds were inflicted upon me in my childhood? And how did pornography pose an answer to those wounds? Because I, I don't think I would have welcomed its presence into my life without having kind of the framework created for it to fit into. So that helps women and it helped me, but it, it helps women kind of see their own worthiness, um, kind of just, yeah, reintegrating themselves back with their their whole identity, including their wounds and including mm-hmm. the experiences they've had that were difficult and evil and not their fault. But it's only in reestablishing that and fitting it kind of into this whole story that they can yeah. finally see mm-hmm. like, oh, my worthiness means I have to reject this. It means I have mm-hmm. to move on. We use a lot of the the kind of till we have faces sort of idea of like you have to face off with your own ugliness and your own self-hatred you like you have to face off with it because god doesn't want the babble he doesn't want you to pretend mm-hmm. he wants you to to be yourself and sometimes being yourself means coming face to face with these really gross yeah. ugly things about you and things that you've done and only then can he reveal to you the beauty of who you are um so we're not like a self-love kind of cultured organization uh sometimes we say really hard things but we find that it's it's raw and it's real and that's what women actually respond to and need mm-hmm. and, and in, in many ways i think this idea that we have to recover our stories because we tell yeah. stories mm-hmm. to ourselves about ourselves that are often false mm-hmm. uh, and our culture tells stories about us yeah that are that are untrue yeah. Uh, and often we have untrue stories that are filtered through religious experiences mm. uh, that, you know, maybe we heard something in a homily once that for whatever reason, that one moment, that one yeah. word stuck with us. And then we built a whole story around it. It's not the church. It's not Christ. It's not even maybe that homily. Yeah. But for whatever it was, right, because in our hearts, we have within ourselves this kind of kind of a, a, like like this this tendency to hate ourselves. Yeah. And uh, St. Augustine would speak about sin as self-loathing, right? Yeah. Uh, and the problem is when he talks about original sin, it's not like we're born bad. It's more that we're born wounded. Mm-hmm. We're not born depraved. We're born deprived. Uh, we're born, and in some ways, but one of the neat things I try to remind people about it with Augustine is, in a way, original sin is a misnomer. It's really original goodness and creation. Mm-hmm. That's what... God reveals in Genesis, and that's what Jesus says. In the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, you were created good. So all sin is actually secondary. It's not original. Yes. Right? It's second. Now, it's original. I'm not denying the doctrine of original sin, right? right? It's original insofar as it's something that's part of now. Now it is part of our human origins. Yes. But in the beginning, it was not so. And so yeah. when we can begin to recover that sense that God created me out of his love, yeah, right, and then kind of in a way, I received a wounded nature, which I further wounded, which my culture and society wounded. And and even those who loved me because no one can love other than Mm -hmm. God and Christ, right? And the Blessed Virgin with love that wouldn't wound. And so even 
uh, right? Family members and I myself, right? When we, we, when we love, we also uh, will in inescapably end up somehow mm -hmm. harming yep. uh, the kind of the, 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 the inner love of the person. And yeah. so it's really trying to recognize that story. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And yeah, I think so much of what purity culture did, because you're talking about like framing our stories through religious experiences is so much of what purity culture did was kind of drive home this idea in my generation and the one right before me, just that our sexuality is bad. It is to be feared. It is dangerous. And and I, I would argue that it is dangerous. Anything powerful that has the potential to be magnanimous is also has the potential to be incredibly dangerous. But purity culture kind of drove home this underlying shame of this is something that you have to be afraid of, that you have to control white knuckling is the only way. Uh, marriage is the only place that this can possibly be good. And so it just, I think it created a, just a whole narrative that sexuality is bad. And oftentimes that's underneath a lot of women's experiences that I'm working with. And it was part of my own experience too, of just, um, especially if in kind of those purity culture narratives, it wasn't even acknowledged that women could sexually sin. Um, I think a lot of those narratives preferred us to be kind of asexual and just be on the receiving end of men's sinful nature. So I think it was just, it got a lot of things confused, but it's created this narrative for women that this can never actually be good. And so one of the most restorative things that I hope we do is creating that idea in them of like, this is, this was created good. This was created to be a place that you can honor and love God, whatever your state in life. And that actually the church says chastity is about integration of the whole person. It's about mm -hmm. bringing it into your personhood. It's not about keeping it separate in a box over here where you can control it and keep an eye on it. It's about integrating it into your whole person so that it can be part of your lived experience in the way that you pursue Christ. And that's a lifelong work, obviously, but hopefully we get them started on that path. Yeah. So would you say a bit more about uh, the kind of the nature of pornography or sex addiction among yeah. women? Because I do think yeah. that is the sort of thing that some of our listeners may not really be that familiar with it. They may think that, yeah. oh, men struggle with pornography. Mm -hmm. uh, we know the statistics on men. Um, yeah. But my understanding is the statistics on young women these days are very similar. Yeah, closing the gap. Um, so yeah. what would you say to people who are kind of who have a maybe just a hesitancy, yeah. you know, thinking that, that, that maybe, you know, their daughters or other people might struggle with these. Yeah. Uh, with these kind of with the yeah. like with 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 an inclination in a mm -hmm. way to consume yeah. uh, pornography that's somewhat probably uh, nowadays just ubiquitous on yeah. uh, phones and social media and uh, one of the things i appreciate in your book is you talk about the fact that it also has this element of secrecy yeah <laughs> you know, no one has to see you you know going Access, out to yeah. the you know, stores. Yeah. So. It's never been more accessible. It's never been more anonymous. It's never been more affordable because it's free. That's yeah. kind of the AAA influence that a lot of okay. clinicians mm -hmm. um, warn us about. Yeah. I'll say first before getting into kind of the statistics with women, one of, I think I'll say this strongly. One of the most harmful things I think parents can say is never my child with this kind of stuff. Yes. Um, I, I, whenever I hear a parent say something like that, like it would never be my child because I have X, Y, and Z in place. I, you know, we have the filters, they don't have smartphones, whatever your reasons. When I hear that, I hear that if your child is exposed because they probably will be, they will hide. That's what I hear. Mm -hmm. And they have the potential to just be stuck in isolation. 
for a very, very long time. So I kind of, whenever I hear that, I try to just firmly but gently combat that narrative of all of us are susceptible to this, no matter how virtuous our families are, no matter how intact, no matter how careful our parents are. My parents were arguably very careful, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea of never my child, it's like, well, you're forgetting that your child is also sinful and has free will. So, um, and we live in a very over-sexualized culture that makes it incredibly mm -hmm. accessible. For women though, yeah, the gap's definitely closing. Um, some of the studies that I reference are even from 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. One of them said that one in three porn addicts are women. So if that's 10 years ago and it was at 33%, that I can only imagine that number's increasing. One, I think about seven years ago, said that 60% of Christian women ages 18 to 40 uh, consume pornography at least on a monthly basis. So 60% is pretty high. And then when it comes to other kind of sexual behaviors, whether masturbation, fornication, fantasy, women have incredibly high numbers of a lot of those, um, even if they're at their kind of pornography habits are low or infrequent. But uh, women actually statistically have more kind of a, of a diverse sociosexual template. So mm -hmm. sociosexuality is kind of our willingness to engage in deviant behaviors. Mm -hmm. And women have a more diverse kind of array. Men tend to be more straightforward. Women will engage in all sorts of behaviors. So in Magdala alone, we address pornography, masturbation, fornication, fantasy, um, online affairs, extramarital affairs, <laughs> women who have left the porn industry. Like there's just all sorts of behaviors that we have yeah. to address because everybody's template is so diverse. Yeah. Um, just one quick thing. What yeah. would you say, what's, what's the uh, average age now of first exposure? exposure? It's 11 for girls, nine for boys yeah. is what they say. Which so. is just, you know, shocking. And this yeah. is where long, I mean, barely hitting the age of reason, really still forming kind of judgment oh, yeah. and conscience. It's traumatic. Uh, yeah. And and I think one of the things your book notice as well is that often, you know, the part, the what is displayed and mm -hmm. perhaps somewhat celebrated in pornography is often abusive. Yes, very much so. Um, even like the majority yeah, of online content yeah, particularly is abusive towards women. Towards women. Mm -hmm. So people are before they have any, almost any of their own, before they've even hit puberty, yeah. right? They've already received uh, like just this odd orientation. Yeah, um, a narrative of violence. I think it was something yeah. like the the content that shows either physical or verbal humiliation and abuse of women in pornography is in the 80th or 90th percentile. So it's like, that's wow. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and women take in that content too, I think for a long time in, yeah, kind of, the the broader narrative it was um men watch pornography women need emotional chastity which i totally agree women need emotional chastity i think everyone does but i know the the talks i received at youth events or different things like that like were always surrounding emotional chastity or modesty or kind of the more feminine topics and yes. men were always sent into the porn talk um mm -hmm. and as a high schooler who was struggling it was like well i need that what does that say about me what does that say about my femininity mm -hmm. so it causes this kind of identity crisis as my femininity is forming and yeah. at a very crucial age in adolescence so it created a lot of issues there but i think we've kind of created this dichotomy where we've gendered the problem instead of gendering the solution so it's like we've separated mm -hmm. men want this women want this instead of saying okay actually Men and women are both sexual beings. How that displays itself is going to be different. There's one study that I cited in my book that I found to be incredibly informative where men and women were both asked to 
watched the same pornographic content and they were asked afterward, what did they attribute their arousal to? And the men said the attractiveness of the people in the video, the women said their ability to imagine themselves as somebody in the video. Mm. So women and men consume similar content. Women just have this intermediary of the imagination, which is destructive in you know so many different spheres of their life. Um, but yeah, I mean, the same content appeals just for different reasons. So I think we got lost kind of in the fray there, but instead we need a gendered solution. Men need to be kind of spoken to as men in their recovery. They need things that will kind of address that uh, more lust attractiveness kind of based uh, consumption head on. And women need something that addresses their imagination and restores it. They need a very creative solution. So uh, for a long time, women who have been struggling were kind of relegated to they they were sent to just male resources and it i think a time came um and i'm honored to be a part of this where it was like well we need female-centric resources we need things that are for the female heart and mind and yeah it's been it's been interesting to kind of go into that world because there isn't a lot of scientific study on it but that is one thing that we see is women women need a solution that honors their imagination and honors their creativity and rehabilitates it well, thank you for describing that. And I, uh, we're going to take a break in a minute, but I did want to just, I, I love the fact that in your book, you often go to John 8, where mm -hmm. uh, Jesus is the woman caught in adultery, the woman caught in a sexual sin, the woman caught in sexual shame is brought yeah. before and um, has no one condemned you, not, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Yeah. Right. You know, go and sin no more. And it seems that your work in Magdalene Ministries is really helping people receive that yeah. word, neither do I condemn you, and mm -hmm. also giving people the resources to go, right, and, yeah. and sin no more. So yeah. uh, I'd love after the break, I really want to just ask a little bit about how John Paul II's Theology of the Body kind of factors into the whole work you do. Yeah. And, and a little bit maybe, which uh, won't surprise readers of your book, but might surprise uh, the top people on the topic is a little bit about how some of the writings of C.S. Lewis yeah. impacts, because I think uh, C.S. Lewis is one of the most quoted authors. And, He's uh, by a, far the most quoted. Fellow, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I'm a fellow fan. So, yeah. Okay. So we'll take a break now and then we'll return. Perfect. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University and sponsored in part by Annunciation Circle. Through their generous donations of $10 or more per month, Annunciation Circle members directly support the mission of AMU to be a fountainhead of renewal for the church through our faculty, staff, students, and alumni. To learn more, visit avemaria.edu join. Thank you for your continued support. And now let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we are joined by Rachel Kalaki, uh, author of Love in Recovery, One Woman's Story of Breaking Free from Shame and Healing from Pornography Addiction. Uh, Rachel is also the founder and director of Magdala Ministries, and uh, we're delighted to have you today on yeah, the show. It's a joy to be here. So uh, we said at the end of the last part that we would turn a little bit to John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Many mm -hmm. of our listeners may be familiar with it. Uh, for those who are interested, one of our first 
podcast episodes was all on the theology of the body uh, with Waldstein. Uh, yes, yes, with Professor Mikhail Waldstein, and who's written a couple of books on the theology of the body. Yes. So if people are interested in that, go back to I think it's like anyway, it's one of the first five episodes. Yeah. So, but why don't you? And I think you were actually in a class with him. I did. Uh, about when you were a freshman or something? Uh, or? Yeah, I was a sophomore and sophomore. it was right as I was entering recovery. So it yeah. was actually like beautifully timed. And I talk about this in my book, yeah. but there was one experience I had with Faldstein where uh, I was, because he conducts his exams face to face. And he asked uh, after the questions were over if I had anything I wanted to talk to him about. I was probably six months sober at this point, And I just kind of, without even thinking, started launching into, I was like, yeah, I'm in recovery from a pornography addiction. And I just feel like I can never get married. I can never really think this is good. Like I can never, you know, and I just kind of launched into this, this explanation with really out even thinking. And he was silent for a really long time and just smiled at me. And I was like, oh gosh, I've creeped him out till kingdom come. But then he looked at me and he said, like this line that has kind of shaped my work now, but he said, lust did not attack you because you cannot love. Lust attacked you because your love is meant to change the world. And wow, I that's still, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I still like give that line in any talk mm. I give because it's women respond to it so beautiful and men too, but yeah. I mostly speak to women. But yeah, sometimes they'll just cry because it, yeah, it's such a, it, it totally changed the, the mindset I had about my struggle was just yeah. that one line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So his, his class was well-timed meant a That's lot to great. me. That's great. That's great. And I think there is something in that, that it's almost when we encounter something in our lives mm-hmm. that is not easy <laughs> to overcome. Yeah. That that's in a way when we truly begin to surrender. Yeah. We're not just turning our lives over to God on our terms. We're, we've, we've simply can't we manage no our lives <laughs> and therefore we have, right, the yeah. gift of desperation. Yeah. The G-O-D, the gift of desperation yeah. that prepares us then to surrender ourselves to God. Uh, and, well and I think that can really happen. And that's right. So lust attacks us so that our love can change the world. Yes. Right. It's, and, and that might be for other people, different, you know, different um, struggles and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought one thing that I remember in your book that I thought was really helpful in talking about recovery, and then we'll say a little bit more about the theology of the body, yeah. but I also appreciate you talking about how some people uh, compare, that, that they compare in their addictions, maybe their addiction, they aren't addicted because their addiction isn't as bad as someone else's, yes. or they can't, or, or their addiction isn't bad enough to qualify for, even though they're miserable, they don't. They're not worthy of a treatment program, yes. right? Or these sorts of elements. And it's interesting that in St. Bernard, St. Bernard of Clairvaux's uh, 12 Steps of Pride yeah. and Humility, the first step of pride is when, uh, at his point, he's talking about the monk, but when the monk takes his eyes off of God and mm. himself and looks at his brother uh, monk, yeah. when he looks at his brother monk and starts comparing himself to that monk, yeah, that's the step of the ego that, starts edging God out of the picture and mm. gets us away from God. Wow. And I think this tendency to compare can be so hard. And I'm reminded also of Viktor Frankl's, the um, man, or sorry, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he says in there, because of course, gosh, he suffered a ton. Right? Yes. Like, but lots of people suffered a lot, mm-hmm. right? And he says that basically each human being has an infinite capacity to suffer. Yeah. So in a way, all of our suffering somehow fills an infinite void. Yeah. It all suffering hurts. And 
I think it's very important for people that are in recovery or beginning recovery or maybe beginning to question whether or not whether yeah. or not they're struggling with something, do they genuinely have a problem? Is that sense of stop comparing and begin to identify. Yes. When they can start identifying with other people's recovery stories, you're beginning to leave the the kind of leave um, isolation. Yeah. And move back to a sense of connection. Absolutely. So could you talk a little bit about how maybe comparing yeah. um, is, a, is a real obstacle to recovery yeah. uh, and maybe how you've either experienced that or experienced it in, in mm-hmm. both in your own recovery and also maybe in leading other people through. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. No, that's a great journey. question. I don't get to talk about this a lot. I think I did for a long time. I, I kind of pulled the, yeah, this isn't as bad as, as other people's. Um, so I must not be addicted. I pulled that for three or four years probably. And it wasn't until I took ownership of what was actually happening that I even began to improve. So there's that, that if you're constantly comparing, you can't move forward. You can't, uh, if you're looking side to side, you can't walk forward. But um, it, it was also like what you're saying about filling the void. Does it have the potential to destroy relationships? Does it have the potential to destroy an aspect of your life? Yes, always. No matter like how much you're consuming, how often it has the potential to to alter something. Plus, it's it's mortally sinful. So that just severs your relationship with God. I think comparison for me even now, because I hear hundreds of stories, nothing else creates imposter syndrome in me like comparison. And I can always identify when I'm feeling imposter syndrome of like, you know, what the heck are you doing? And your story doesn't matter enough to even, you know, kind of be running this thing. Like just just all of the the ego rearing up, right? It's almost always because I heard someone else's story and compared first. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, the role of envy in comparison is interesting of rejoicing at someone's suffering, suffering at someone's rejoicing, right? Like, so there's kind of that role for women a lot too. But I know for me, sometimes I will, I will still fall into comparison of, well, I wasn't, I didn't suffer as much as that woman. So like, why, why am I? in this position, you know? And I think one of the lines that helps is when I look at, uh, when I look at a woman who's perhaps suffered more than me or suffered longer or whatever, it's the line of, but for the grace of God, there go I, of that could have been um, easily what happened to me and worse, you know, absolutely. Yes. But for some reason, God's grace decided to, you know, pluck the brand from the fire when he did. And he'll do the same for this woman when it's best for her story and her sanctity too. And, but yeah, I think a lot of women will avoid help because they think that it's, you know, quote unquote, not enough. And also because they don't really have a lot of female stories to operate off of. They don't really have anything to to frame themselves against. So I think a, a lot of them will compare to men's stories and men's stories look very different than women's stories. So that can kind of create a false comparison too, as we were constantly comparing ourselves to men and their struggles. Yeah. Um, so I know that's a bit of a rambling answer, but no, it I think that's very, very helpful. And I do think it's worth um, just asking kind of one other question. And uh, in in a way, the nature of addiction is just complex. And in some ways, right, the human person is such a mystery. We shouldn't be surprised that we can't explain it in the way we can explain, you know, something mechanical. Like, how does a watch work? I can tell you. How does the human person work? Whoa. Yeah. Like we shouldn't be surprised that there's a bit of a mystery there. Yeah. Okay. We have a, a, a mind that can know and love God yeah. that can contain the whole universe in principle. Yeah. And yet, of course, we also have bodies 
mm-hmm. right? That are like the animals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not a big surprise that this is a rather unique being yeah. that can know and love God. And at the same time, right, uh, as uh, Lewis puts it one time, you know, breathes and breeds like the animals, yeah. right? You know, we have that element. And yeah. I think I've always loved one line from, and for people who are interested in this, or sometimes wonder, you know, uh, whether or not, say, addiction or when should Christians seek help of counseling, seek help of therapy, yeah. seek help of recovery groups, yeah. you know, shouldn't confession or prayer be enough? Yeah. Uh, I think that in a way that's, you know, that's just, that would make sense in a way if we were kind of angels, Yeah. <laughs> if we didn't have bodies. The problem Absolutely. is that our bodies and our psyches become habituated in ways that allow us to live and thrive. And when they become Does misaligned, it, yeah. they yeah. don't change easily. No. Right. We survive because we have habits. We react similarly over time. Yeah. And um, I have a, a, a doctoral student who wrote on addiction and he said that he described addiction as a habitual incontinence uh, that's atypically and it's atypically extreme and enduring. So yeah. it's not just like a little incont- a little struggle of weakness of will. It's something that's just extreme and enduring. Yes. Uh, and Lewis in this, in Mere Christianity in chapter, uh, book three, chapter four, it's actually called morality and psychoanalysis, but he says, shouldn't everything just be morality or shouldn't everything just be psychoanalysis? And he says, wait a second, we have a mind and a will that's the center of our person, but then we also have the whole emotional and psychological mm-hmm. part of life. And somebody might have an extreme fear of spiders yeah. or an extreme fear of heights, right? That is where their ability to act volitionally and rationally is mm-hmm. overwhelmed by their fears. And we call those phobias. And you kind of recognize, oh, yeah, well, somebody with a phobia, right, needs to find a way to lower that anxiety, to lower the overwhelming character. And I think that same model can be used in a way for kind of modes of addiction. It's not as though the person doesn't somewhat have the volitional capacity to seek help and the volitional capacity occasionally to force sobriety. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's also because the very psychological material is wounded from the activity. Yeah. Actually, even Aquinas would say they say one of the sin, one of the punishments of sin is its pleasure. Mm-hmm. And eight hundred years later, we kind of say the same thing. What happens is that when you do things that are harmful to you, they also create dopamine like yeah. circuits, which then you kind of go, oh, I I want that again, and mm-hmm. you remember where it is now, and it's all too easy, but. Lewis says this, he says, the bad or what I would call the wounded psychological material is not a sin, but a disease. Mm -hmm. It does not need to be repented of, but cured. Now, I'm not saying there's not also a volitional aspect, but there is also this kind of this wounded psychological material that needs to be healed. Yes. Right. And and I think it's seeing that these can operate at both levels Mm -hmm. is uh, really important for people who, who may have in struggling with addiction, you know, gone to um, confession many times yeah. or um, or have asked in prayer God to take this away and then, you know, d- don't understand why, you know, they're not stopping. And sometimes I think they have to just recognize, well, in order to get the psychological material kind of rehabilitated, you have to yeah. go to physical therapy. Right? Yeah. You have to go to psychological therapy, whatever that takes. Yeah, doesn't mean it can't be with a priest or it can't be. But I think in some ways these recovery groups 
are in a way, at least they're the kind of, they're the ordinary way of mm-hmm. achieving an extraordinary result. Yes. Right. Of absolutely. recovery. So could you yeah. say a little bit about that question of um, kind of, you know, uh, when is it a choice, so to speak? And, and when is it a compromised choice? Yeah. I think the role of addiction and, and will or the relationship between the two is something that I know in kind of the theological world is like disputed sometimes. And then we also get it's kind of a constant conversation internally in our organization because we have a lot of women who come and say like my priest says this is a mortal sin and you know I'm always culpable and then we have some say like I'm not culpable if I'm addicted right so it can just get to gray area I think what I I tend to emphasize with women is consuming pornography is always a grave matter it is always grave whether or not it's mortal you know it can change obviously based on um your loss of willpower, which is a hallmark of addiction of any kind, is the loss of willpower. So if your will is damaged, how much can you consent with the fullness of the will? And But whether or not that's the case, focusing on the fact that this is always grave is what I think should drive our confession is this is this is always harmful. It's a grave matter in and of itself, whether or not you are morally culpable for the, the fullness of engagement with it. But I... That's very well said. Yeah. That's I, very well said. Thanks. I love that. Because the point of it is that it's like, I think sometimes we worry too much about culpability. Yeah. Like, who cares about culpability? God, yeah. al- God alone knows culpability. Problem. Yeah. The problem is, is it, I, I, I need to find a way to stop doing this. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, what can I do to yeah. help find a way to stop doing this? Because it is not helpful. Right. It's not healthy. It's not wholesome, right? The word for, you know, um, yeah. salus, salvation is really healing. Yes. You know, yeah. the ancients knew in a way that we were wounded by mm-hmm. sin and death. Wound, we're, we're, we're scared to death of death and we're, we can't stop kind of sinning and that even we can't understand things properly because we have a, mm-hmm. right, this darkness of our, a dub, twofold darkness as Aquinas would describe of sin and ignorance. Yeah. We don't, like we really need healing. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And so I think that idea, I love that expression that, right, this is, this is, these behaviors are ones that are, are not helping me. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, they can actually, this is, of course, the mystery of God's grace, is that they can become the occasion by which I begin to learn humility. I begin to yeah. learn that I'm actually, mm-hmm. like, I actually, like, have something in my life that I can't solve on my own. Yeah. So I genuinely yeah. need to surrender my will over to God and right, ask God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Yeah, it's a healing of the will. I think if we're constantly worried about the mortal sin versus venial sin, yeah. and one of our small group leaders was one of the ones who articulated it really beautifully with like, this is always grave. But I think when when we're worried about it, we're also just viewing the sacrament of confession as just transactional. Mm-hmm. Of just like, this is something a box I have to check, which we can all fall into, but... Um, Fulton Sheen, I think, was the one who said, like, there is no place for healing of addiction like the confessional because it is the healing of the will. It's Mm -hmm. um, you are trying to reclaim a blessed will. You are trying to reclaim a will that is in cooperation with grace. So going to confession repeatedly, it is healing if you see it that way. But um, I like to think about when we're talking about like psychological healing versus spiritual healing, all of this stuff that. There's just such a diverse array of ways that Jesus heals in the gospels. He never is like, I touch the top of their head and then everything's fine. You know, he spits, he uh, touches ears. He just, he doesn't touch anything. He just walks and lets somebody touch him, right? There's so many different ways that he heals. And 
I think that's the same way now. Like he can, if you, yeah. if you view mm-hmm. therapy as the healing touch of God, if you view a recovery group as the healing touch of God and give credit where credit is due, like, yeah, oftentimes women will come to Magdala wanting us to, with this desire of like, this is the silver bullet. This will fix me. This will finally get me to the place I want to be. That's just not the case. We're mm-hmm. uh, an organization run by very messy women and we've developed a program um, as best we know how. We've developed resources as best we know how. We're fostering community as best we know how, but ultimately is the Lord who heals. And this may be the avenue that he chooses and this may not be, or it may be this avenue in conjunction with a 12-step group, in conjunction with a therapist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the sacramental life of the church is at the center of that. But I just think, uh, I think we do him a discredit when we don't see his healing hand through these diverse um, options, when we just think he can only do that one way. That doesn't mm-hmm. make much sense to me. Yes, and one of the things you talk about in your book is how do we talk about recovered innocence? Mm. Recovered innocence. And I love this idea. Um, I remember early on, maybe in college, hearing something about secondary virginity. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't know if that's the best expression, but, you know, uh, Augustine became a virgin. Yeah. For God. Yeah. He 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 wed Lady Continence. Yeah. <laughs> he did. Yeah. Like, that's what happens in yeah. Augustine's Confessions, Book 8. Mm-hmm. Right. He clearly is not a, he's already told you many times. He's got a kid. He's not a virgin. He's got a kid. But he becomes a virgin for God. Yeah. Um, Not physically. And, you know, that's true. Right. Mm -hmm. But but in a certain sense, it's a spiritual dimension. I think sometimes we kind of can reduce uh, sexuality to kind of the empirical physical side because that's the weird thing about the human person is it also has a physical and it also has a physical side and that's not unreal. That's also part of our reality. So we don't want to become Gnostics and say what you do with the body doesn't matter. No, right. You do the body remembers, so to speak. Absolutely. um, But at the same time, right, this recovery of innocence, I think that in our modern age where we tend to be more comfortable thinking in scientific empirical terms rather than spiritual terms, we tend to think that like, a repentant sinner is, well, you know, is just still a repentant sinner. Right. And in our culture, we certainly don't forgive people who did something bad a long time ago. We cancel them and, you know, and yeah. right. So, and and there's a way that I, I was thinking about this when I was reading your work, the sense of innocence, it came to me, First uh, John 3, 1, where uh, the author says, right, see what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, for so we are, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. that actually Trent says the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, justification means that we've been translated, moved from the child being children of Adam into being children of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Yeah. So grace is real. When yeah. God creates the world, it's really created. When God says, right, this is my body and blood, it's really my body and blood. And when God says, you're his son and daughter, or I'm his son. You really are. I really am, mm-hmm. which is bizarre. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Right? I don't understand it, but I can accept it. And so that would have to mean then that I'm, God looks at me like I'm Jesus Christ. And to a certain extent, as First John teaches and as Trent teaches, I truly am. Yeah. So yeah. how would you talk about that sense of innocence with that recovered innocence? Yeah. Um, which is always partial, right? Of course, because, you know, we still every day say, you know, Father, you know, or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. For sure. Right. Yeah. But what would you what would you say to people who, you know, maybe are looking for that? Yeah, I I was 
greatly inspired by the quote from Chesterton when he talks about how our father is younger than we are and how God, I love that. Yeah, God is kind of eternally innocent. And I like that you talk about kind of the concept of secondary virginity because this is sort of what John Paul II with TOB did is talked about um, sexuality is ultimately like it, it's a part of our personhood and it's a spiritual reality before being this physical reality. It's that has to be the primary. And for a long time, we only talked about it in the physical bodily sense. And there's just loads of confusion, like centuries of confusion there, but just a lot of times when we would talk about virginity, it's like loss of virginity or when we're talking about Augustine, it's he recovered the spiritual dynamism of what what virginity means, of what continence for the kingdom means. And that can be recovered by anyone um, and that can be lost, you know, by somebody who is a physical virgin, right? Mm -hmm. That concept can be lost. You can be a physical virgin and not understand um, the power and, and the beauty of what that gift is and what the gift of self is. And actually, I'd argue sometimes it's the people I've spoken to who are not virgins, say entering into marriage or uh, religious life, like their permanent vocation, um, who understand the gift better because of repentance. That's often been the case. Um, and I've written on that in like other spaces, just kind of the concept of virginity in general. But yeah, I think innocence is about recognizing like this, this is about my personhood. This is not about acts I've committed. This isn't even about my physical state. This is about my eternal fate my eternal destiny of like who yeah who am i and i think a lot too about uh what's the quote from prince caspian where aslan says uh like you are you are a son of adam and that is enough to both like erect the head of the greatest emperor or the or the erect the head of the lowliest beggar and bow the head of the greatest emperor that's it yes. and he says yes. be content mm -hmm. that is the final line be content yeah. of like you have been endowed with an unspeakable dignity and uh, your humanity can be, yes, the the cause of your your greatest humility, but it also can be like the restoration of like your your greatest um, honor, your recognition of your worth. Mm -hmm. So for me, I mean, the recovery of innocence, the recovery of wonder, because I think pornography just absolutely obliterates wonder. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's also a lifelong part of recovery is the recovery of wonder and being childlike. And so that's something I'm still very much in the midst of myself. I think I, I forced myself to grow up too fast in many ways. And so I'm kind of trying to pull back spiritually in many ways in that. But I think it's it's mostly just about that of a recognition of what the gift of humanity is, because that's what children do. They just delight in being a person. They delight in the world around them. They delight in creation. And so just learning to delight again, you know, it takes time. Um, so I don't know if I have like a super solid answer to that beyond what I've written, um, but just that I think that is, it's one of the most beautiful parts, but perhaps one of the deepest is just the recovery of that wonder of who we are, but the humility about the wonder of who we are, you know, that we're incredibly small and, but incredibly dignified. So. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. I think, um, I remember hearing that Christianity is in some ways that we on our, on our own are much worse than we ever want to admit. Mm -hmm. um, but in Christ, we are more beautiful than we can ever imagine. Mm -hmm. right? And it's really remembering who we are because we remember who God mm -hmm. is and yeah. what he has revealed and done for us in yeah. Jesus Christ uh, is the really the story of, of really learning to recover not yeah. only right our innocence, but our story. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, that right, what God has redeemed is truly redeemed. Yeah, right. This is a beautiful thing. I wanted to ask you. I try to ask all our guests three questions. So, yeah. what's a book you've been reading? What books have I been reading? 
Right now I'm reading Redeeming Heartache by Dan Allender. Uh, so he's the psychologist I talked about earlier that kind of has the narrative-based trauma uh, theory. And that's been super beautiful. I just finished Romano Guardini's The Lord, which was incredible. It took yeah. me a few months. I read it for prayer. So it took me a few months to get through, but that was amazing. Um, and I'm also reading John Stewart's Mill on the subjection of women. Okay. <laughs> so that's yeah. just for kind of just for my own knowledge and yeah. fun. But yeah. no, there's a lot of our, our, our intellectual history is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's worth knowing. Uh, so what's a, what's a daily practice, just, you know, maybe one that you might want to share with our listeners or viewers, mm. uh, that you do to kind of recover spiritual meaning and spiritual healing in your life? Yeah. Um, I, I have tried very hard over the past several years to cultivate daily prayer. So what that looks like for me now is um, journaling. I'm a big journaler. So I, I was really, I finally felt at peace with the fact that I was a journaler in prayer when Thomas Merton said that journaling can be a form of contemplation. So uh, if you do it correctly, which that made me happy, can be a meditation and contemplation. So just setting aside time to read, to listen, um, to what the Lord is telling me through reading and just kind of through sitting in imaginative prayer and then journaling and speaking with him. Um, that's kind of the, what it looks like now. And yeah, that's been very grounding for me for several years. So this is a, the Catholic theology show. And um, one of the things we do in the show is try to think that kind of what we think about God matters, yeah. right? Ideas matter about God. And you know, what's maybe a belief or an idea you held about God that you mm. learned was false or that was limiting your ability to kind of come to recognize his true face? Mm. I think one of the most healing things for me has been encountering God as divinely simple. That's been the kind of, yeah, the concept of divine simplicity. Cause I think for a long time I thought God was so complicated and it doesn't mean he isn't infinitely mysterious, right? But he is mysterious cause he is, simple and we are uh, divided and disintegrated and complex um, in the bad sense. So that's been, that's been a healing thing for me to kind of learn about God is that when I'm kind of, you know, rife with anxiety and stress and just division in my own mind and heart, he, he is completely integrated and simple and one. And for a long time, I think I thought he was more complex than me and was just like waiting for me to get more and more shattered and uh, fragmented in order to understand him. But that's not the case. So that's, yeah. that's beautifully put. And we are coming on the end of our time, but yeah. I uh, can't, I, you, you end your book um, with uh, a set passage, a little reading yeah. from C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce in this where there's a young man who's been trapped by lust, uh, mm -hmm. the red lizard of lust mm -hmm. and his shame. And uh, at some point he allows the angel to kill it. Yeah. And when the angel kills the lizard, this is what happens and mm -hmm. you call it uh, right. The white horse mm -hmm. and we all need to find our white horse, right? When the yeah. red lizard of lust dies, the white horse of desire, mm -hmm. authentic desire Passion. for God is released. Mm -hmm. The new man clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body horse and master breathed each into each other's nostrils the man turned from it and flung himself at the feet of the burning one and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness. One cannot distinguish them in that country which flowed from him. 
I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew well what was happening. There was riding, if you like it. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were shooting. They were like a shooting star far off on the green plain and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps and quicker every moment till near the dim brow of the landscape so high that I must strain my neck to see them. They vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. As he puts it in the quote, um, little poem or song afterwards, but he says this, far from beyond all place and time, out of the very place, authority will be given you. The strengths that once opposed your will shall be obedient fire in your blood Mm -hmm. and heavenly thunder in your voice. Mm -hmm. So for those who are interested in uh, learning more about Rachel Clackey, uh, you can find her book, Love in Recovery, with uh, Ave Maria Press. I know, ironic. Um, You can also find um, her work at Magdala Ministries. Uh, if you're interested. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, as I said, if you're interested in learning more about the theology of the body, we have a podcast with uh, Dr. Michael Dauphine mm-hmm. and Dr. Michael Waldstein. So thank you very much for being with us on our show today. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.